Hello and welcome to our To Kill a Mockingbird podcast. In today's episode, we're going to be combing through the first couple of pages and looking at the historical references that lie within. Uh, today I'm joined by Hannah Graves, uh, who is uh, an alumnus of the school, an old girl, if you will, and uh, has taught at Warwick University History Department and Queen Mary University History Department. Hello, Hannah. Hello. Uh, so uh, you'll want to have your copy of the text in front of you when you go through this. Uh, we begin uh, chapter one, and uh, after um, a very straightforward introduction, creating a bit of mystery, when he was nearly 13, my brother Jem got his arm badly broken at the elbow. There's little hints in there, uh, which you can go through with your teacher, which are fairly straightforward. They introduce the, the adult narrator of Scout, the fact this is going to be set in the childhood, it sets up the figure of Boo Radley, uh, and also... Um, uh, and also the idea that at some point Jem is going to have his arm broken. So there's lots of foreshadowing that's created, uh, lots of references to things that will happen in the future. Uh, and it makes it clear this is set in the past. I'm not going to go through that today. I'm actually going to sk- jump down to paragraph three, and we're going to comb through the historical references here. So the first one is this, paragraph three. Uh, I said, if he wanted to take a broad view of the thing, it really began with Andrew Jackson. If General Jackson hadn't run the cricks up the creek, Simon Finch would never have paddled up the Alabama. So, Hannah, who was Andrew Jackson and what does it mean, drive the cricks up uh, up the creek? Uh, So Andrew Jackson was a president, a Republican president of the United States. Uh, His term in office ran from 1829 to 1837. So the first thing to notice really here is that Scout is saying uh, if we wanted to take a broad view of the things, it you know, the origin of everything that's going to happen in this book, her significant, the significant passage in her childhood really started a hundred years prior to the 1930s depression era setting of where the action takes place. So that's the first tip off. Uh, she really is taking a broad view of the thing uh, and saying that really the origins of the story go way back. Um, Andrew Jackson is notable for being an American president who was very interested in uh, westward expansion, in claiming new parts of the frontier. So America, as we know it now, didn't really exist in the same shape in the early 1800s. Uh, He moved west and, you know, uh, took over new territory. Of course, to do that, you end up having to displace people and... Uh, just to jump in there, um, if you picture or if you get bring up a, a picture of um, the United States in front of you, remember in the mid-19th century, uh, 100 years before this book is set, um, just picture half of America, the eastern half, the right-hand side. That's the United States. Everything to the west is kind of a, a bit of a no-man's land. It was Native American territory. And so... When um, this line, it seems just a throwaway line right at the beginning, but essentially what um, uh, Harper Lee is saying is that the history of America is the history of persecution. It's um, Europeans who came over here with slaves. It's early American presidents like Andrew Jackson persecuting Native Americans, pushing them off their land, pushing them uh, pushing them away so that America could grow. So there's this reference of, of the history of America being the history of persecuting people. And the way she expresses that is she talks about um, sort of uh, running the creeks up the creek, uh, which is a play on words, um, but uh, and the, sort of the expression up the creek without a paddle. Um, the 
creeks she's referring to are a tribe of Native Americans based in the South. And so that's her kind of reference to Andrew Jackson's policy of claiming new territory by moving people along. And he actually had a, a law called the Indian Removal Act, which uh, sort of was designed to displace people from their homes. Um, so essentially, you might just want to make a, a little note in your copy of the text that Andrew Jackson, he uh, moved the Native Americans off their land. And that's kind of our very first look at um, the history of persecution in America. Uh, moving on, uh, we then move to our next reference, a few, a few lines later in the next paragraph. Being Southerners, it was a source of shame to some members of the family that we had no recorded ancestors on either side of the Battle of Hastings. Uh, all we had was Simon Finch, a fur-trapping apothecary from Cornwall. Uh, so this is um, uh, th- this is a little bit of a look into uh, what I would describe as wasp culture, white uh, Anglo-Saxon Protestant culture, uh, and the obsession that Southerners had. Remember when we say Southerners, we're talking about uh, Americans in the southern states of America, around Alabama, where this text is set. Um, Now, why is the Battle of Hastings getting mentioned here? That's going back a thousand years. Why are we going back there? And it's because of class. Um, The upper class families, upper class white families uh, in um, American history um, have always liked to uh, show that they are, you know, they're, 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 they're not just nobody. They have ancestors. They have legacy um, that reaches all the way back or um, to um, uh, their old countries. So a lo- in a lot of these uh, upper-class American families, they'll love to mention that, oh, actually, my family's Scottish, my family's English. Look at Trump. Case in point, he will often mention, oh, well, my, fa- my father was from, my father's family was from Germany, my mother's family was from um, Scotland. Uh, he's an American, but that idea of, in WASP culture, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant culture, uh, the, uh, the idea of um, lineage, almost like you've, you're, you're bred from a, a noble stock that goes way, way back. Essentially, what um, Harperley is saying here through Scout is that although her family goes on to be successful, uh, they were not uh, of this upper class background. They, they worked their way there. It's this little throwaway, little throwaway reference, and hopefully that's made it, helped it make sense. Um, we then also uh, dive back into the, uh, the history of this character, Simon Finch, um, uh, who's their, their ancestor coming over from Cornwall. Um, uh, he, uh, it says, in England, Simon was irritated by the persecution of those who called themselves Methodists at the hands of their more liberal brethren. And as Simon called himself a Methodist, he worked his way across the Atlantic to Philadelphia. Um, so a, a little potted history of this. Methodists are a type of Christian. Um, Christianity is divided up into Protestant, uh, Protestantism, um, Orthodox and Catholicism, three major churches. But the Protestant church is divided into about 600 smaller churches. So the Church of England is a type of Protestant church. Baptists are a type of Protestant church. Methodists are a type of Protestant church. Um, And it wasn't until um, uh, about the mid-19th century that you were allowed to practice anything in England other than Church of England uh, Christianity. So if you were a Methodist in, say, 1810... Uh, or 1800, if you were a Methodist or a Baptist, uh, you were persecuted, you might be fined. And many of them said, you know, I'm fed up of this persecution in England. I'm going to head across the Atlantic to the new world. And I'm going to set up where I can 
preach and live uh, live freely and practice my own religion. And that's where we get America from. America being founded um, as a very religiously uh, liberal society in the sense of you could practice any religion there and not be persecuted by it. So that's why there's suddenly this, this reference to tension between different religious groups that get, gets mentioned there. But again, it keeps our theme of persecution running. So we've had Andrew Jackson persecuting the Native Americans. Now we've got Methodists being persecuted by other types of Christians. So this idea that human beings throughout history have always been persecuting one another is basically the major theme of this novel four paragraphs in. Um, So it's high time we moved on to uh, slavery and um, uh, black Americans. Uh, Throughout this podcast series, I'll be saying black Americans. um, You can say African-Americans. Both are equally PC terms. Uh, But you should never say just blacks or just whites. You should always give them their nouns. So black Americans. Um, Bottom of this same paragraph. So Simon, having forgotten his teacher's dictum on the possession of human chattels, bought three slaves and with their aid established a homestead on the banks of the Alabama River, uh, river some 40 miles above St. Stephen's. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that? So, yeah, um, the first thing to highlight, you know, given that we've been talking about Christianity, is that um, Lee notes that Simon has forgotten his teacher's dictum. So what she really means by that is, although, you know, Christianity obviously uh, is a message of uh, a brotherhood, uh, the teachings of Christ are, are about forgiveness, acceptance, um, Lee is pointing out the hypocrisy um, that uh, someone who sort of attempted to escape persecution would go on to become a slaveholder. So, uh, which is the possession of human chattels. By that, that is a sort of uh, fancy way of saying uh, slaves. And in America, uh, it's uh, black uh, individuals who were enslaved. Um, It's an interesting turn of phrase with established, you know, with their aid established a homestead. But basically, I think that phrase highlights that this isn't something Simon would have been able to do on his own. And as we have it now, just through this personal history, we're kind of moving through a chronological history of America more broadly, as Lee is telling it through Simon's individual experience. Just worth briefly saying about slavery in America, um, you're probably aware from history lessons about the transatlantic slave trade that happened um, in early American history through the Revolutionary War. But actually, um, as early as 1807, uh, the importation of slaves from overseas was banned in the U.S., Instead, slavery did continue in America, but it wasn't people bringing slaves from overseas. It was um, the descendants of slaves, so their children, would go on to continue to be enslaved. Um, And so that became a kind of... um, uh, you know, a horrific cycle, obviously, for individuals caught up in that. Um, it was heavily policed. And we see Simon Finch here, Scout's ancestor, making his money and his living through that free labour. Uh, yeah, actually, just returning to that line, having forgotten his teacher's dictum, this is an important one from Narrative Voice, uh, because this is, um, this is um, adult Scout. This is our adult narrator, uh, who clearly has learned uh, to to be a better person than her than her ancestor. So Simon, having forgotten his teacher's dictum, implies that our narrator 
didn't agree with slavery. Our narrator wasn't proud of this moment in her family history. And that idea of pride in your family history is very, very important because in a couple of paragraphs time, we'll find out um, uh, about um, whether the family continued to have pride in their homestead or whether they moved away from their homestead. Yes, it's interesting. Just she goes on to say uh, the, the sort of narrative voice says it was customary for men in the family to remain on Simon's homestead, Finch's Landing, and make their living from cotton. So what we get early on here now is a sense of how um, this uh, early move to the U.S. Uh, at establishing of uh, this homestead, this kind of uh, you know, land that he's going to cultivate for cotton, how that ends up being a kind of inherited wealth that passes on through the generations that his descendants benefit from. So while we have his enslaved um, uh, workers passing on the kind of uh, horrors of slavery to their children because they cannot escape because it's racially policed, um, Simon Finch is able to pass on to members of his family and ultimately to, you know, Scout's father and, uh, and the generation that we're going to kind of catch up with um, the benefits, the uh, wealth that came from this farming. So uh, moving on, um, just a, you know, a, a brief recap of, um, of, of what we've journeyed through in uh, American history. There have been references to uh, an ancestor coming over uh, buying slaves, uh, starting a plantation, making your Finch's Landing is the name of a plantation. Uh, so a big house, huge farm around it, lots of slaves uh, working for a white master, making their living, well, they're making their living from cotton. Um, this was brought to an end by the Civil War, which happened in uh, 1861 to 1865. So again, remember, this book is set in 1933. 1861 to 1865 is not that long ago. There would be people alive in the 30s who fought in the war, who lived through that war, and certainly were scarred by that war as well. So it's really not that long ago. Uh, we're talking about 70 years. Um, think about today, how in this country, in our culture, we still talk about World War II, we still talk about the Blitz. It would be the exact same thing for the American Civil War. Worse so, because remember, the American Civil War, it's the northern non-slave-owning states fighting against the slave-owning states of the South. So this is a country torn apart in two. Um, think Brexit times a thousand. It's, it's, it's the bloodiest war in American history. Millions of Americans lost their, lost their lives fighting in this. Um, and this comes in on the line, uh, it's a, um, several paragraphs down where it's, Simon would have regarded with impotent fury the disturbance between the North and the South. And that is, that is a coded reference to the Civil War, the disturbance between the North and the South. So obviously getting into the, the causes of any war is a complicated thing and perhaps a totally separate podcast of its own. But it's worth saying and just returning to that early mention we had about the frontier and westward expansion, because it actually ties into some of the causes. Um, Mr. Sebastian's mentioned how the northern states weren't slaveholding, the southern states were. Well, as America expanded out west and cultivated uh, and claimed more of the western territory to be part of the country, Debates raged about whether these new states that were forming um, out west, you know, think cowboy kind of country, uh, whether they were going to be free states or slaveholding states. And there are manifold tensions and various cases and things that arise, but a delicate balance that was being held between the north, which is where the centers of power, government and banks were concentrated, 
and the South, which was where most of American agriculture took place and farming, um, really started to um, get thrown out of whack. Um, in 1860, you have the election of uh, President Abraham Lincoln, who you may have heard of. He was um, a Republican. He was a Northerner. And although he didn't set out necessarily to end slavery and, in fact, you know, sort of sat on the fence for a number of years, as it became clear um, that these sort of tensions weren't going to go away. Um, and as uh, uh, southern states, keen to defend their right to continue to enslave people, broke away and formed what they called the Confederacy of Southern States. Um, ultimately, America found itself rocketing towards a, a civil war. Uh, so the southern states that were part of the Confederacy were Mississippi, Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, Texas, and Alabama, which is where To Kill a Mockingbird takes place. Now, uh, bear in mind, in a civil war, it's a country fighting against itself. And when it comes to an end, the country is both won and lost. So this is where we enter into what in American history they call the period of Reconstruction, which is the North won. Slavery was abolished. There were other issues there as well, but we're just going to focus on slavery. Uh, slavery is abolished. Now, uh, the southern states have lost, but they're still part of America. So they need to be re-entered into the union of the United States. And that happens over the course of about five years. And so by 1870, the country is back together again. And it was through a process of reconstruction, which was where the North basically helped the southern economy recover. Bear in mind, most of the, all the richest people in the South um, uh, they, the, the reason why they were so rich was because they didn't pay for labor. They didn't pay their slaves. And so the minute you say you either have to free your slaves or pay them for their work, suddenly your business model doesn't make sense. You can't make millions of profit because you've actually now got to actually fund your business by paying your paying wages to your laborers. So the, the whole Southern economy was a slave owning economy. Uh, Hamilton fans, uh, if you uh, go back to Jefferson, uh, Jefferson, uh, the reason why he's kind of the baddie in Hamilton is is because that's really all he wants, uh, according to, um, uh, to to that musical and that biography. All he wants is for America to be free so he can keep on uh, making lots and lots of money um, uh, through his plantations and his slave-owning practices. So uh, Jefferson's jumping back a bit, but by the time we get to the Civil War and its end, you know, people like him, people of that upper class, people like Simon Finch, find themselves, um, you know, economically devastated. Um, it's worth saying also that the war was particularly harsh. You know, it's like uh, it wasn't a mechanized war like it, like we think now with you know aircraft and things like that. But the of ultimately the North did um, was aggressive uh, and seized land. Eventually gave it back to people. But you have a rise of a, a very poor population, and it's a poor white population, but it's also a poor black population. All these people who were previously working for free find themselves, um, you know, still effectively laboring in just as harsh conditions, but. Um, uh, you know, alongside a newly impoverished white population. Um, and so the reference we get to that in uh, Lee is um, just on from where she, he, uh, you know, she talks about Simon would have regarded with impotent fury the disturbance between the North and the South. The rest of that sentence is, as it left his descendants stripped of everything but their land, 
yet the tradition of living on the land remained and unbroken well into the 20th century. So with that, she's referencing Reconstruction, this period in American history that ran uh, broadly 1865 to 1877, um, where the North was intervening in the South. But ultimately, what happened at the end of Reconstruction is it, it really wasn't a success from the point of view of the North. Really, just to ease tensions, um, things wound down. The North pulled out their kind of military, the lingering military or kind of control of the South, and let things kind of just carry on as is. And it was in that period where, um, effectively, where the North leaves occupying the South, where racial tensions really exploded. Uh, yeah, and also if you think about um, the different classes of um, of, of uh, white people, uh, you've got your upper class white people who've lost their businesses. So they've got lots of money in the bank, uh, but their businesses don't make any sense. And so actually there was, a, there was what was called the Great Decline, where you saw a lot of very rich families gradually decline as they couldn't make their plantations work anymore uh, because they didn't have their slaves. But bear in mind, not every white person was an upper class white person. There are plenty of working class white people as well and suddenly they were in a position where they had competition they had uh, uh, previously always been above any black person because a black person was a slave now in the job market uh, you've got uh, pretty poorly educated white people against uh, uneducated uh, recently freed slaves um, competing against each other, competing for places to live, complete, competing for jobs. And so tensions started to grow um, against um, uh, recently freed slaves and upper class American, uh, white Americans and working class white Americans as well. And so it's really at the period of reconstruction at the end of the Civil War where um, racial division starts to become very entrenched. So the Ku Klux Klan, which is a white supremacist uh, organization formed in 1866. You might have seen reference to the Klan. Um, as it's talked about, you might have seen movies that deal with this. They wore uh, white robes and hoods to conceal their identity. And effectively, uh, they are, and to this day, unfortunately, remain a, a terrorist organization. They would go around terrorizing the black population. Um, uh, we'll, we'll cover that in a slightly different podcast where we'll look at other things. Um, but we want to uh, come back to the text here. So our next textual reference is um, uh, just a few uh, a paragraph later. Uh, there's a reference to what Atticus's office looks like. So Atticus is um, Scout and Jem's father. He is loosely modelled on Harper Lee's own father, who was a lawyer. And it says, Atticus's office in the courthouse contained little more than a hat rack, a spittoon, a checkerboard, and an unsullied code of Alabama. What is a code of Alabama? So a code of Alabama, again, this is very veiled, but it's effectively the local state law. Um, another way that you might see this referred to in textbooks or wider reading is black codes. These were the laws that came in after Reconstruction as a way uh, at the state level of controlling the freedoms of newly free black people. So uh, effectively what this means for black Americans is that although you may have been given uh, freedom from slavery, a whole vast array of complex laws, also known casually as Jim Crow laws or Jim Crow segregation, come into being and they limit your uh, freedom to access uh, facilities, your freedom to live, work, um, 
in an equivalent way to the white population. So uh, these Jim Crow laws, um, which would be part of the Code of Alabama, uh, each state, Alabama, Mississippi, Indiana, they would all have their own code. Remember, America is a patchwork quilt of states. You've got federal law, which is the whole country, which is the federation of countries, and then you've got state law. Code of Alabama is just the laws in that state. And and these Jim Crow laws, these specifically racist uh, anti-black uh, uh, citizen laws, uh, were, um, uh, 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 were were idiosyncratic. They changed depending on which um, which uh, county you were in, definitely which state you were in. Uh, an example of a Jim Crow law um, would be, well, technically, um, black people were given the vote um, shortly after the... Um, uh, after the civil civil war, there was the Fourteenth and Fifteenth Amendments, which which extended a whole load of rights uh, to um, Black Americans. But it was the Jim Crow laws that actually stopped them picking up those rights. So it was things like a, lit- a literacy test was introduced, so you could only vote if you were literate. Well, if you're a recently freed Black slave, you probably can't read, so that stopped them from voting. Uh, there were there was gerrymandering, which is a moving of um, boundaries, uh, saying you can only vote if you live in this district. Um, okay, well, if only whites can live in this district, then only whites can vote. So these Jim Crow laws, uh, which are referenced by this unsullied code of Alabama, um, uh, is an indication that um, Atticus uh, knows his law well. The word unsullied, it's up for debate. Uh, is it unsullied because he is um, very referential uh, over his code of Alabama? He makes sure he doesn't you know, fold down any pages. Uh, or is it unsullied because he you know, doesn't, doesn't handle it a lot? So it's up for debate uh, exactly why it's unsullied. But I would describe the character of Atticus as fairly unsullied uh, um, in terms of his um, uh, virtuous, uh, upright um, nature. Uh, uh, moving on, uh, we have a small reference to class which comes up. Uh, what I'll say is um, a, um, a good student will talk about this, uh, this text and they'll talk about race, but a better student would talk about this text and class where you've got uh, upper class white people, middle class white people, working class white people, and then these incredibly like, like bottom tier um, uh, lower class white people. Uh, there's a reference here, which is, but they were Haverfords, and in Macon County, a name synonymous with jackass. Uh, the Haverfords, the Cunninghams, the Yules, who come up later, uh, they represent um, the, uh, the the descendants of white Americans where uh, they're desperately poor, they're hit badly by the Great Depression, uh, but they also um, are threatened by the rise of black Americans who, uh, you know, we've now got the descendants of slaves by the time you got to the 1930s, where you've got these upwardly mobile, um, more successful um, black families, where they actually represent a, um, a threat to uh, these very poor white families. Um, and so there's a little nod to how white class and lower class white people uh, is significant later on. Um, the, the next couple of paragraphs um, uh, bring us forward right into the 1930s and talk about, uh, reference the Great Depression. And we'll have a separate podcast where we'll go through details to do with the Great Depression era. But there's just a couple of references in the text that are worth noting. 
Yeah, so after this, you know, huge sweep through American history, we kind of catch up. Um, there's even like a sort of break in the paragraph flow. And our older scout says that Maycomb was an old town, but it was a tired town when I first knew it. Um, we know that this, the main body of what happens in this text takes place during the Great Depression. Um, as Mrs. Fashion says, you'll cover that elsewhere. But there's a few kind of references that I just want to kind of draw out. So she talks uh, about how, you know, some setting the scene, some of the kind of ways in which um, she, you know, characterizes the town. And there's one phrase that's interesting. She talks about people... Um, a bony mules hitched to hoover carts flicked flies in the sweltering shade. So Hoover is capitalized, so you know its name, and it's actually a reference to President Hoover. He was the uh, president uh, of America during the, the bank collapse, uh, the start of the Great Depression. People tended to use his name derogatorily. It became a kind of insult. And a Hoover cart is just a kind of a, a term for like a, a, a way of um, you would kind of gut out a car and stick a uh, mule or a horse on it to get around because you wouldn't have had the money to maintain your car or have petrol. So that's just the sort of signal of the time period that we're, we've now caught up to. And the only other thing I'd want to sort of just contextualize um, is though, despite noting the kind of uh, slow pace of life, the poverty, she says, it was a time of vague optimism for some of the people. Maycomb County had recently been told it had nothing to fear but fear itself. Now, it wasn't just Macon County that was told that. Nothing to fear but fear itself was actually the, uh, a phrase used in the inaugural address of uh, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He was the Democratic president who took over midway through the kind of Great Depression. And he was the one who spurned a bunch of reforms uh, that were eventually called the New Deal in, uh, from 1933 onwards that uh, sought to give people more money um, to help reinvest the nation and rejig the economy. And in fact, if you are paying attention, you'll probably have heard Boris Johnson, among others, referring to a new deal for Britain in the midst of the COVID crisis. So some of this rhetoric is still very pertinent and uh, alive and well today. But effectively, uh, that's just something to bear in mind. Uh, it's, it dates our, the, the text. It makes it clear that Scout's childhood took place around shortly thereafter the uh, inaugural uh, address of FDR in 1933. And then the rest of the chapter uh, really just focuses on um, Boo and setting up that kind of excitement and mystery and rumor that surrounds uh, Boo Radley. Uh, so uh, just in summation, um, what have we learned really about this text and about Scout. Well, the the whole text isn't this dense. You'll be uh, you'll be you'll be pleased to know. I'm not going to go through every page in this much detail as we go through this podcast series. Um, but the reason why these um, uh, these pages are important is because it sets up history as uh, almost as a character within the text. History is a very present thing, um, uh, which. Uh, arguably all the way up to today with the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, these issues from hundreds of years ago are still not even bubbling under the surface, they're breaking through the surface. Yeah, um, there's a nice quote from a writer called William Faulkner. He was another um, Southern American writer. He actually wrote in the 1930s, sort of when this novel is set, uh, a little earlier than uh, Harper Lee. But when he was talking about his own writing and, and the South and its history, he said, the past is never dead it's not even past. And by that, he means that the forces and the things that shaped America in its early days are still reverberating and can still be felt in the present. 
Uh, and certainly if you think about Harper Lee when she published the novel in the 1960s um, or in 1960, so many of the issues she discusses uh, as the book goes on about Southern injustice, about racial discrimination, segregation, uh, were still palpably felt uh, for, for Black Americans. Um, you know, these are issues that are ongoing, debates about the Confederacy, uh, the South, the legacy of the Civil War, occupy our newspapers to this day. And really, this introduction, though dense, um, is just Lee's way of sort of setting up that we're kind of caught in a, a cycle in which the past um, is, is shaping our present. Um, yes, and it's um, it's a incredibly strong way to begin an entire text because before we're actually really properly introduced to Gem Scout Atticus and all the characters, we're actually introduced to their ancestors and uh, history. But really, it, it just makes it very very clear this isn't just going to be some little coming of age story about Scout uh, growing up and Gem breaking his arm. This is going to be a story of American history. And that is where we will leave today's podcast. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you've been making notes throughout. Um, and I hope you listen to another one of our podcasts. Thank you very much and goodbye.